Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at the brand new DC film, Joker. A whole lot of news around that, so we're excited to get into it. We're also going to look at a not-as-well-known Robert P- Robert Pattinson film in anticipation of the Batman movie that will inevitably be coming out with him. Uh, the movie is called High Life. It is on Amazon Prime, if you haven't seen it. Uh, feel free to check it out or just hear a review and we'll let you know if it's worth your time. Um, between both of those reviews, we're going to talk about Martin Scorsese. He's been making some waves this week. And before we get to all of that, we need to talk about some news. And the first things first, Jurassic World 3. Yes. <laughs> the next Jurassic World picture is bringing back some key figures from previous Jurassic Park films. Uh, big names here. Andy, you want to spill the beans? Uh, yes. Yeah, so somehow Colin Trevorrow found a way to bring back uh, some original cast members in Laura Dern, Sam Neill, and Jeff Goldblum. Uh. <sighs> which which th- <laughs> this series has jumped the shark so bad. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like it's not like, you know, when, when the Force Awakens came out and they said, you know, the original Star Wars cast is coming back. It's not that that kind of excitement. Jurassic World 2 was on our list of the worst films of I think it was 2017, 2018. Um, it was terrible, and there's nothing that can really redeem the series at this point. You know, a, a lot of what made it that the original movie so good is that it was asking these kind of deep philosophical questions about like you know man versus nature, and uh, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Like, th- there's a lot in there, and uh, you've just lost all that. Now it's it's just really cheesy sci-fi, essentially. Yeah, it's it's real bad. Uh, just like getting ready for the story, I was looking over uh, Jurassic World 2 on IMDb just to kind of re-familiarize myself, and I was reading about the conclusion of that movie, and I'm going to spoil this, and this isn't a spoiler show normally, so excuse me, but we've talked about it. Uh, I was reading about how, like, after... <laughs> it was just, like, one sentence. After the failed auc- dinosaur auction goes horribly wrong, <clears throat> dinosaurs are released out <laughs> into the world because a little girl who's a clone feels a kinship with them. Like, it's the most absurd byline for a movie, and that's what happens. Like, this series has gone so off the rails, and I can appreciate the success they found with having Jeff Goldblum in the last one, right, reprise his role as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Now they're going to have him back again, along with Sam Neill as Dr. Grant from the first film, and Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie from the first film. I get that people are all about nostalgia, but I don't think it'll save this series. I just don't. Yeah, no, not not at all. The, you got to have some steps, substance, and you know, it'd be like if you brought back Roy Schneider to be in Jaws Six or something yeah. to to that. Like the, the Jaws series went way off the rails as well, very far from the original. And Jurassic Park has done the same thing. It just feels desperate. And like, I, here's the thing: one, nostalgia sells, so we all know it's gonna work. And two. Jurassic World 2 made a ton of money, so this one's going to be a big deal whether we like it or not. Audiences will speak with their wallets, and people seem to like this series despite us cinephiles not being so into it, so it is what it is, I guess. Our next story, uh, Spider-Man is going to stay in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, hooray, for at least one more movie. Disney and Sony made up, Andy, right? Yes, which we predicted on this show that they would do, that there was too much... (laughs) Too much money at stake, too much uh, to be lost um, by not collaborating. So we knew that they would eventually kiss and make up. And yes, as as you said, there will be at least one more uh, solo Spider-Man film, and he'll also appear, I think, in maybe one or two more MCU movies. What's also interesting about this story is that Sony is still kind of developing a Spider-Verse of their own, possible Venom-Verse. Um, so... That, that was kind of buried in this story, but that, that's definitely happened as well. But the good news is, as, as most people thought, they found a middle ground. They found a way to compromise, make the business side of it work. And so we will be getting Spider-Man uh, still in the MCU. So for everybody who doesn't remember how exactly this story came about, a couple weeks ago when we reported on it, what had happened was Marvel and, or Marvel and Disney, Sony and Disney got in a dispute over who was making money off of Spider-Man. Sony and Disney were splitting box office rights 50-50, and Sony kept all the merchandising. I think that's how it worked, and now it's been reworked. Uh, Sony and Disney are splitting at 25%. I, I, like, I don't really understand how the numbers add up, but it seems like they're happy enough. The most interesting part of this to me is... Disney contracting Spider-Man to be in one more Marvel film because for the last generation of Marvel movies he was a really cool part of it it was really cool having Spider-Man show up in our Avengers movies it's going to be weird not having him now do you think Andy 
they'll revisit this and get him in more, or do you think this is a one and done? What's going on? I th- I think that they'll revisit it once in a few years because this uh, is probably not really delayed, but the next Spider-Man movie won't come out till summer of 2021. Uh, so we have a while for them to come back and renegotiate this deal. By that time, we will also be well into phase four of of Marvel. So we'll see. It'll be a whole different landscape at that point. That's right. By then, Angelina Jolie will be in a Marvel movie. Kumail right. Nanjani will be in a Marvel movie. Things are going to be crazy. Uh, and we'll be talking about it here on Off Script. So keep it here for more. Our last story. Uh, Netflix's The Irishman is heading to Broadway after major <laughs> theaters refuse to screen it. Oh, my God. Maybe people really are out to get Netflix. What's this about, Andy? Uh, so as we've previously reported, um, The Irishman is going to be released on November 1st. And Netflix wanted to do uh, some sort of, of screening with uh, small theater chains. The big ones, of course, uh, did not want any part of it. They have failed to really find... Uh, uh, at least, I guess, in New York, a small chain. And so what they've done in, in a brilliant piece of PR is they're going to be screening it at the uh, the Schubert organization's Belasco Theater, which has never screened a film before. It's been only a stage and musical, uh, you know, Broadway venue up until now. So this is a first for that. And they're having to bring in, um, you know, camera equipment, projection equipment to actually do it there because it's not even equipped for that. Um, so it, it's a pretty... It's a pretty interesting move. And again, this has to do with a dispute between distributors and studios where distributors want that full 90 days before something goes to streaming so they have time to make as much money as they can on on the initial release. Right. Uh, The reason The Irishman isn't coming to big theaters is twofold, I think. One, big theater chains are scared of Netflix, right? They're scared of streaming services. They don't want Netflix movies coming out there because that's just money in their in Netflix's pocket, which is seen as competition to companies like AMC and Cinemark and Regal. So they don't want to run The Irishman because then it might do well. Uh, it might even get some Oscar buzz, which is the other reason. The other mm-hmm. reason being, if The Irishman does not run enough theaters, theoretically, it won't be considered for a lot of film awards, right? Because that's some yeah, kind so that's of absurd... Right. What, what, what do you know about that? Well, I, I don't think it's the number of theaters. I, I do know it is the um, how long it plays. It has to show for at least two weeks, um, and I think that that's still uh, the thing. And the other interesting is it's it's running the same number of shows. It's running like a Broadway production. It's running Tuesday through Sunday, and it's running, uh, I think it's eight shows a week. So it's, it's interesting that it's in that, I guess, Broadway style of performances and it's just running one month which is i guess how broadway shows also run so it's it's kind of warming up to the broadway side of things while also still being in theaters for a month fortunately for the rest of us outside of new york it does say here that netflix is in talks with smaller indie distributors like alamo draft house if you happen to have one of those near you uh and they may be running the irishman so if you do want the theatrical experience of martin scorsese's three and a half hour film uh, that is how you would do it. Uh, we'll, we'll figure out where it's screening. I'd like to probably see it in the movie, Andy, right? How about you? Yeah, I so definitely... See in the well, theater, I should say. Yeah, I want to... Uh, you know, Scorsese is one of these titans of cinema, and he he shoots and creates with the, the audience in a theater in mind, so that's definitely where I would w- want to catch this as well. Yeah, I was excited to see uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, tweeting a lot about this movie. Apparently, he saw a screening and he really enjoyed it. He said it flies by three and a half hours, not a long time, <laughs> and that uh, you should absolutely go see it in a theater if possible. That was his year of epic so. movies. Yeah, certainly. Speaking of epic movies, we should talk about our first film of the show. Andy, you've agreed to take the summary for this one. I can't wait to hear it. Please take it away. Joker. One small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out. Can you introduce me as Joker? Send in the clowns. So this is the uh, the new 
Joker Origins uh, story directed by Todd Phillips. This is not related to any other DC properties or any kind of a larger universe. It is a one-off. We've had a lot of buzz about this movie, a lot of backlash, a lot of controversy. We're going to talk about it all, but let's first get into this story. So it opens in a kind of an ambiguous time frame, but definitely somewhere between the 70s and the 80s. We meet our clown and protagonist, Arthur Fleck, played brilliantly by Joaquin Phoenix. He is uh, a f- kind of a failed slash failing comedian. He has a job as a clown, which it looks like he works with a, a company of clowns that get clown gig <laughs> gigs. Um, yeah. You know, we... It, at the opening, we see a scene from the trailer where he's he kind of gets uh, beat up by this this group of, of youths, um, and is just kind of a pathetic uh, figure. Through the course of the film, uh, we're exposed to the larger world of Gotham. The setting is uh, there's a garbage strike. Uh, there's garbage piled high in the streets. There is inequality. There is uh, political unrest. We meet. Thomas Wayne, who's who's gonna save the city in and um, you know have have a run for mayor. Um, so this is the kind of the setting we're in, and Arthur Fleck is this character who's he's he's small, he's scared, he he doesn't really relate or understand other people. He he has this very strange uh, condition allegedly where he'll just start laughing uncontrollably at at the wrong times you know or things that aren't funny or things that he only he finds funny and no one else does um and so this is how we start the film and then we kind of run through a series of events and we slowly see him descend into madness and eventually become the joker and Part of the way along the journey is a mystery, and this is part of what I really enjoyed about the film, is that you, it's not just about him becoming the Joker, it's about him discovering his past as well, and you get to discover it alongside with with him. Um, there's a lot of great things about this, uh, this movie. I've seen it twice. There's been a lot of criticisms as well. Uh, so we're gonna get into all that. This is gonna be a long discussion, I think. Zach, what did you think of Joker? I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. Um, I don't want to say I was going in skeptical. In fact, if anything, I thought I was a little overhyped. Uh, I had seen the trailer a few times, and I was very excited to see what was going on. But I definitely, you know, I had some hot takes on, on Todd Phillips, uh, who's directing drama for the for what seems to be the first time. Uh, you know, coming off of comedies like The Hangover and Due Date that he's made, I figured, you know, this probably won't be that awesome. It's definitely a departure from traditional comic book films in that this is supposed to be a one-off and its own kind of thing and not necessarily a part of the DC universe and it's its own beast. So I didn't know really what we were getting into, but I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it, how well made it is, um, how well put together it is. The script is really good. Um, I liked it a lot. I actually really like this movie <laughs> uh, and I'm excited to talk about it. So what's the best place to jump in here? Where do we, where do we start this conversation? Uh, why don't we start with with the plot where we usually start? Mm. So we sorry, I'll, I'll keep sorry, continuing. Go ahead, so like, yeah. like I said, so we start <laughs> with with we meet Arthur Fleck, and he he's kind of a loner. He's socially awkward. He, you know, we we meet him talking with his social worker, who you know, kind of is his therapist and also keeps an eye on his medicine. We learn a little bit about him. We learn that he was institutionalized in in Arkham. Uh, we know that he uh, kind of has thoughts of anger and that, you know, he's, <clears throat> he, he's a damaged person. And then we, he lives at home with, with his mother um, in a very strange kind of Norman Batesy kind of n- awkward, uh, you know, relationship. Uh, and then, like I said, we, we see him go kind of experience different things that, that thrust him into madness. And it's, I, I, you know, a lot of people have come, not complained, but brought up the concerns about the uh, depiction of mental illness or the depiction of, or the worry about sympathizing with this character. And I don't feel like we, I don't feel like we, that really happened because while he is a a sad figure and you, you feel bad for him at times, you know, his actions are never justified in anything he's doing. And so I, I think that they tread a, a very careful line. But like I said, the majority of the film is is him slowly discovering more about his past and also accepting, uh, basically, he goes from holding the madness at bay to just letting it uh, overwhelm him. Yeah, that, that's a fine place to kind of get things going here. Arthur Fleck is a very interesting character in that he starts the film incredibly damaged. Like the film opens and he's on seven medications. Like it's not it's not like a slow descent into horror. And that's that's 
an important place to draw a distinction from something like Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Because Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle is a relatively normal person, but he can be driven to extreme ends. Whereas in this movie, Arthur Fleck is not a normal guy. He's not a relatable person. He's his own he's his own kind of beast. And we get to see this unfolding through that uh, it, while he's surrounded by people who are normal, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh so yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the portrayal of his character that way. Um, Joaquin Phoenix does a fantastic job of kind of bringing that out and getting getting uh, <laughs> just like this real bad kind of misery with a lack of understanding about it. Like Arthur is just sad all the time, but like he doesn't seem to be able to understand why or how to, how how to make it better, and it just gets worse. It, it mm-hmm. is it is two hours of, of of descent into madness, you know. Yeah, uh, I had a friend who who I watched this with who. <clears throat> who who said that the portrayal of kind of depression was very authentic and almost like she almost had to get up and leave because it was too close to the real thing and not not, not in his craziness but in his despair in his feeling that this is as good as it gets it is not getting any any better um his walking penis uh performance is it, you know he's lost a ton of weight he's absolutely emaciated but also you know you're missing not missing but you don't have the the big monologues or the scene chewing stuff you have from like Heath Ledger Joker and the Dark Knight what you have is in a very internalized performance you have like his pain is broadcast through his face and his actions and his body and his he does this thing where he there's a lot of actual dancing in in this film which I thought is really incredible because it's part of what seems to be just his happiness or his catharsis and so it's going to be very difficult for people to do Joker impressions because he doesn't have these big like monologues or these big lines like he does in the dark night the the performance is much more like i said internal it's much more about witnessing like seeing the pain yeah and and todd phillips who co-wrote the film and directed it did a great job of kind of directing phoenix in these scenes to really bring out like the awkward and and the painful stuff there's this great scene in the trailer that i want to highlight that uh, features our, our young Arthur at a, at a nightclub, a comedy club, watching a stand-up comic, and he's sitting in a room with all of these people laughing, and he laughs at all the wrong times, and his laugh sounds totally disingenuous when he does it, because he's got a real odd laugh in this movie, and he's writing down, like, all the times people are laughing and what they're laughing at like a crazy person would. It's fascinating, and it's such a good genuine scene and really brings out his character as this kind of kooky outsider who just wants to fit in and and maybe even you know get a little a little bit of the limelight for himself right um the, the laugh is a really interesting thing and careful viewers will will notice this he actually has two different laughs um the one that we've seen in the trailer is what i would describe as his fake laugh and you can tell this in the trailer itself like it's the very high-pitched one this is the one he uses when he's laughing when he thinks he's supposed to laugh like someone tells a joke he doesn't think it's funny, but he feels like he needs to laugh. There's that. So that's the first laugh. And then there's his real laugh, which is more kind of how you and I would laugh. Um, right. And that's that's when he thinks something is really funny, and it's usually at the wrong, wrong time. So it's it's this incredible performance that, that digs into the character, that, that shows his kind of his internal feeling, his internal state, and is, is, like I said, at the same time, totally different. It's not... It's not, you know, like Heath Ledger's Joker is great and he has great lines. It's just, it's just a completely different thing. On the other end of Joaquin Phoenix, and we'll, we'll talk more about him. We're not done yet, but on the other end of him, you've got this great foil in our city, Gotham, which is really headlined under one person, Thomas Wayne, who is very fascinatingly presented as more of a villain in this role, right? If our movie is going to be about a villain, the Joker, then our hero has to be antagonized. And so you do that by making Thomas Wayne seem like kind of a bad guy. And you get this really interesting dynamic of like the city of Gotham, which is struggling with extreme poverty and garbage in the streets and extreme unemployment and, and, and like a really struggling economy. Um, you know, wanting to rise up against the rich. And Thomas Wayne, who's running for mayor, is the richest man in Gotham, of course. He's Bruce Wayne's father. Uh, and and you get this really cool kind of class warfare thing going under the scenes, which you uncover more of as you watch the film and creates a perfect setting for Arthur Fleck to 
kind of ha- have his demise and rise as our Joker character. Right. But part of what, you know, in the traditional Batman movies, um, he's always per- Batman is a symbol. He's what inspires Gotham's. He inspires the best. He inspires the people. He's a symbol. So we get a little of that, but it's in the opposite direction. Uh, the Joker and a lot of his actions end up inspiring the city that you've seen in the trailers. All these, uh, it's like riots with people wearing Joker masks. Like you'll see in, in the film where that kind of comes from. But he he ends up embodying that which usually is reserved for Batman or usually is, is seen by Batman. And this is kind of where his power comes from in this film. Like he, he doesn't do any of these like mastermind evil genius kinds of things. It's his actions that inspire kind of the masses. And that's what's, what's kind of scary. And like this movie is so grounded and it's, it's almost a little bit too real. Like I said, there's a, there's some real content warnings, uh, for people. Um, Man, uh, back to you were saying, uh, Thomas Wayne. He again, he he is the he's presented in a very unendearing manner. He's he's not sympathetic to the poor. He said, you know, we've made something of, of ourselves, and there's people that are jealous of that, and that's why I need to save this city. It's so funny because he sounds like he says the kind of stuff that Batman would say, but as you know, a rich, a rich billionaire, <laughs> yeah, doing it politically. Yeah, and and I thought the movie did a great job of of occasionally reminding us that this is a comic book story because you kind of forget watching the movie I, I heard somebody say uh, when talking about this film that is, this feels like they had a script for a totally different film and then they realized they could tie it into Joker like it that's that's how departed it feels from the rest of the comic book worlds that we know of you like very rarely are you reminded oh yeah they're in Gotham oh yeah this is Thomas Wayne we're talking about or that's Bruce Wayne right there like you don't really think about it a whole lot because it's such a hyper focused story on Arthur's struggle to try to become a better person um, and ultimately succeed I guess yeah and that's that's part of what uh, is I think is making this movie really brilliant is that it you could strip away the Batman stuff from it and you would still have a really great great film about like you said these these kind of social and uh, political themes uh, throughout throughout the movie and we we do have just enough of the mythos to make it uh, interesting you know we we have the a lot of inspiration taken from like films such as Taxi Driver or King of Comedy, but also the the Killing Joke, which is one of the most famous uh, Joker stories, uh, with where the Joker is like this kind of pathetic failed comedian. And then we we have these these connections to the Wayne family, as well, which is it's just done perfectly. Like there's just enough of it to keep it interesting. It's not overdone and it's not underdone. Speaking of Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, we can't talk about this movie without talking about Robert De Niro, of course, right. uh, who appears <laughs> as a late night comedy host and another kind of foil for our downtrodden uh, comedian in Arthur Fleck. Uh, he plays Martin Flanagan, I think, host of a Tonight Show. That's his name, right? Murray. Murray. Murray Flanagan. Uh, and he's this kind of fascinating, definitely old timey, uh, like. I guess, yeah, I guess like an 80s Letterman kind of shtick, right? That's right, his whole right. deal. He's got a band. Johnny He's Carson. Got these, yes, Johnny Carson. Yeah, um, the movie is set in the 80s, and I think it does a pretty good job, honestly. Like, it's fun to see De Niro, like, it seems like kind of trying at something, you know? I mm-hmm. feel like I see a lot of De Niro flicks, and it's just kind of, yeah, there's Robert De Niro getting his paycheck. But this one, I was like, no, I, it feels like he's... It feels like he's kind of injecting a little something into the role. He's got some personality, and he's definitely got some confidence on screen. Classic De Niro. I liked it. Right. And we also have, uh, I wanted to mention Francis Conroy, who is um, plays uh, Arthur's mother. Penny uh, Fleck. Pe- yeah. Pen- Penny Fleck. And like I said, they have this kind of uncomfortable Norman Bates relationship they live together he bathes her she's like she doesn't you know she doesn't work she's uh invalid or house uh has to stay in the house for all we know but she is a big very big part of of his development and for why he is how he is or how, how he ends up there um you know we have a a trip to arkham asylum which is always a famous place in, in the batman universe and uh that's a very interesting scene. We learn a lot there. And th- that's the other thing this film does is we touch on these bat, these special bat- Batman places and they all have a lot of purpose. We're not just there to say we were, we were there. Like I said, Arkham, the comedy show, crime alley, these places. So I do want to talk about the way this movie's put together. Um, it's linear. Um, almost exclusively I think I'm hard pressed to think of when it's not just straight A to B to C kind of story but uh, I love the way it's shot Todd Phillips shot almost this whole movie on a tripod 
So it's like long takes, very settled, long stuff. And on occasion, you get some handheld. And that's usually when things are getting nuts, right? You get handheld camera. It's a little bit more frantic. But almost always, this film is locked down up until uh, you, you get to see those kind of hin- those hints of, of real madness under Arthur's skin, you know. And then you get some really cool long take handhelds. Um, really neat. And really genuine. The color felt great. I saw it on a 35mm print at Alamo Drafthouse. Uh, the music was good. The presentation is is very different from, from other comic book films, and I, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I, I per, particularly love the score. Um, and I can't say this person's uh, name. I, I, saw, do- <laughs> I, I saw them in the credits, yeah, and I thought the same thing. I was like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, but it's, it's Hildor Guan Atador, mm. I think. Which is yeah. a woman. Which is a woman. Uh, fantastic score. There's. It's lots of like you would hear in an indie. It's. It's very much like cellos and basses and very string driven and different than any other kind of comic book score. Very memorable. Very uh, effective in, in evoking this this darkness and this kind of lot. Like because it's a lot of that like real scratchy strings uh, playing when it's like soft and you can hear the, the like the the you know strings on the bow. That's that sort of thing. Excellent. Excellent score. Yeah. So to start kind of wrapping this conversation up, uh, I think Joker is a lot of what it says on the tin, right? You see the ad for Joker. You see, okay, it's Joaquin Phoenix making a slow descent into madness for two hours. You go to the theater. That's what you're getting. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a fun ride, and it's engaging, and it's interesting, and you're right. Like, you could totally take the Batman out of it, and it would still work, and that's what, part of what makes it so charming. Um, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Uh, Andy, any final thoughts? Uh, do we want to get into any of these controversies surrounding the, uh, the, the film? Or we you can... know, I, why not, right? A quick... We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, a quick little a quick little something here. I, I wouldn't mind. Because I think I, I think I feel better about my answer now than I did before. Now that I've right. seen the film. Same, same, um, same. Do you want to kind of set yeah, up? So, the, so there's a few things. First of all, there's been critical backlash against this film after it came out. Because... Uh, I, I think, um, you know, Mark Kermode said this. This is exactly what happened to La La Land. La La Land came out. It was a huge hit at the festivals. And then it became the popular thing to hate. And all the critics were like, well, it's not really that great. And then it came out and the audiences loved it. And now it's regarded as, as a really good movie. And the same thing has kind of happened here where it's gotten too much hype from the festivals. And then I feel like um, expectations have been raised really high. And then people are like, well, why isn't it Citizen Kane? Well, that's it's a comic book movie. Um, <laughs> so there's that. The other thing, there were worries about, you know, is it going to incite violence or, you know, how are we portraying this madman, this uh, kind of, uh, you know, broken down white man who fights back of the system. People were were worried about these sorts of portrayals. I I felt all those to be unfounded. Um, Like I said, at no point is is Arthur, are you sympathetic to his cause? Because his, his actions are so heinous that it you don't feel you don't feel bad and it, it also I, I just didn't think any of that was had any merit you know i thought you know john wick kills a hundred people in his film no, no one bats an eye <laughs> you know the joker puts on some face paint everyone's losing their mind sure well we should we should talk about that real quickly because because the film i feel like makes a a tremendous effort uh to explain his cause uh, th- there's a scene where he straight up says in character i'm not political i don't have an agenda like he just doesn't right like that's that's mm-hmm. the difference joker doesn't have a point uh it, it's it's pretty much it's almost selfish in a way arthur's you know attempts to kind of find a kind of kind of try to figure himself out here um he's not doing it in in service of anything greater that's part of the issue i think with with uh, the concerns like people said well you know it's it might incite violence and it implies something larger and it's like it really doesn't it, you can read it that way but like that's not the way i think it's intended to be taken it's frustrating that people feel that way mm-hmm. um and you're right like nobody nobody points at john wick three nobody's got a problem with rambo six that just came out but joker comes out and it's it's an issue yeah um, it's frustrating um but i i in a weird way, I, I sympathize. I think that 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 I can do. Right. The other thing. So there, there was an article that our uh, you know our friend Matt sent us about this certain song being used towards the end. That um, apparently the songwriter is a convicted. Uh, <laughs> 
Gosh, yeah, I don't know. He, he, he's he's in prison for sexual assault crimes sure. of a, of a variety of nature. Um, uh-huh. And so, anyways, this guy's like in his eight seventies or eighties. He wrote this hit song fifty years ago. Um, I don't. I forget the name of the real song. We all know it as the Hey song. Every single high school and college and probably middle school marching band learned this song and played at football games. But for some reason, yeah. people have been writing articles about like, is Joker supporting this this uh, pedophile songwriter by including this song? That guy's been getting royalties for fifty years, like long before this movie came out. So I, I kind of feel like that's unfounded, and I don't, I, don't, I have no idea where that ca- kind of came from. Yeah, it's it's a marching band song. Like my high school played that at every game. That was never an issue, but somebody figured out, oh hey, the guy that wrote that's a creep, so this is a problem now. It like it's a bummer. I, I don't wanna and I know this isn't the kind of show to, to kinda wax about media and, and messaging, but like I don't I don't wanna just assume that like the information we're taking in is ignorantly malicious maliciously ignorant i I, Uh I take it or leave it but like when yeah when i see people people when i see articles about people who are upset about this kind of stuff it's hard not to draw conclusions like that that like it seems like you're just trying to get a rise out of people just because you're just trying to get clicks right right exactly there's and and in all this controversy has only helped the film i think it it set a new record for October releases 93 and a half million that's huge that's as much money as Justice League made in its opening weekend on you know a fraction of the of the budget so the controversy is not hurting the movie I think lots of people are enjoying it and there are some serious things like I said there are some definitely you know I had some a couple of friends who were were a little concerned and are going to kind of wait until it comes out on on DVD and they can watch at home in kind of more safe settings kind of stop it if they want to Mm mm-hmm well, uh, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I agree. I think, um, any other thoughts for recommendations? Cause I, I have one, but I, I, I want to, is there anything that we, we've said that we praise this film a lot. Is there anything negative that kind of stuck out or anything that kind of, uh, is a criticism? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I don't, you got anything? <laughs> <laughs> I, like I said, I've seen it twice, and the, the you know the first viewing, I I just thought it was kind of okay, and that that had to do with kind of the hype behind it. And then when I saw it again, and I let the movie just be what it is, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think part of what I really wanted that first time is like I just wanted more like full fledged Joker, and really the whole it takes him kind of the whole movie to become that. And the first time I kind of wanted him to get there sooner, so he I could see him do like crime stuff or mastermind stuff but that's it's that's not the kind of movie it is and when i allowed it allowed myself to enjoy the movie it is i I enjoyed it much more thoroughly but um that's been kind of one of the criticisms yeah you get these beautiful kind of poignant vignettes uh in in between kind of the madness right all the bad things that happen to arthur fleck you get these moments where he's alone and wearing makeup and he just has like a vision or something like all of that I really enjoyed. I'm hard pressed to think of anything I didn't like about this movie. I, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be on a top ten list at the end of the year, but like, considering how far how the year's gone so far, I could very easily put this on yeah. a top ten list. Like, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the one other thing I was going to say was uh, Warner Brothers really needs to lean into this thing they've started doing, which is give a director a property and just let them do what they want. Because it, it's working. Like, you gave Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman, you gave David F. Sandberg Shazam, and now you've given Todd Phillips Joker, and all three of them are really good movies. Like, really good, guys. Uh, you should, you know, maybe keep running with this, and don't just try to lean into, like, Zack Snyderverse or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like... Don't don't try to copy the, the MCU, and you'll do fine. Right, the, the, the hang-up was running with one director's creative vision for everything, and I guess that worked with Joss Whedon, because his was kind of generic enough and he had done television like Buffy and stuff uh, but with Zack Snyder like it just didn't translate well I, I I would argue his first DC film Man of like what Man of Steel no uh, Superman what's his name of it? yeah Man of Steel yeah yeah uh, probably kind of holds up in, in, in its own way right similar to the way these do but trying to take that template and drop it over everything is where you've gone wrong but when you give a director a property and you go you know what just don't screw it up <laughs> like you yeah. might be surprised at what they can turn out yeah these these are all some tremendous films um, DC should keep leaning into this or just start from scratch and hard reboot and make Joker your first universe film and go from here you know mm. just run with that uh, 
Anyway, Andy, would you recommend Joker? <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. I I really enjoyed it. It's an incredible portrayal uh, by Joaquin Phoenix. Great score, good stelling, uh, storytelling. I will I will say you know a couple of content warnings. It is very uh, it's rated R, so there are some really really strong violence. That's part of what makes this different from a lot of other comic book movies. Uh, you know, remind me of a lot of something like Logan. It's in its it's in the league of its own, and it's it's very different. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, and you know recommend it to the uh to the avid comic book film lover yeah same boat uh i agree i would recommend it as well i thought it was a lot of fun it is rated r for violence so if you're not into that you're probably not gonna like it but if you know if you're kind of tired of comic book movies and you just want something a little different it, i think it's worth your time it, i think i think arguably the comic book moniker might hurt it because i think a lot of people will turn away from it because they'll just assume oh it's another comic book movie i don't care you know it's really good it stands on its own. I enjoyed it a lot. You should go see Joker. It's worth your time. <laughs> and with that, we should talk about our next segment. Andy, you want to uh, introduce it here? I, I, I pose this one. Do you mind if I do? Go ahead. All right. Uh, this is The Death of Cinema. So, coming off of our Joker review, we've got an interesting comment from Martin Scorsese, yes, director of The Irishman, uh, who's made some waves this week. When in an interview with Empire Magazine, he compared Marvel movies to theme parks, uh, he was saying, quote, that's not cinema. So for the whole the whole kind of shindig here, what, what had happened was they had asked Martin Scorsese, hey, listen, what do you think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? They're making billions of dollars at this point. DC is trying to chase them. What do you think? You're, you, you're a, an auteur, a master filmmaker, Martin Scorsese. Please let us kneel at the altar of your wisdom and you tell us what you know. And he said, and I quote, I don't see him. I tried, <laughs> you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It is the cinema of human beings trying to convey, or sorry, it isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. It's like riding a roller coaster. You're not doing anything. You're not doing anything deeper than skin deep. And this received a wide range of, of replies from people who have worked in and out of the comic book film industry. James Gunn, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, said uh, he, was, he was really bummed about this. Uh, he said uh, he was outraged when people picketed Scorsese's film The Last Temptation of Christ without having seen it. And now Scorsese is judging his films the same way which is a bummer. Joss Whedon said he loves James Gunn and he loves Martin Scorsese and he doesn't get it, but whatever. You know, Robert Downey Jr. weighed in on the Howard Stern show and he said he thinks I understand, um, but whatever, I guess. Like, it's. It, I think the general consensus from people has been, okay, but so what? And, and I guess I wanted to pose, Andy, how do you feel about this Scorsese hot take? And how do we feel about the internet's reply? This reminds me of when Spielberg himself said that Netflix movies weren't real movies. You know, it's it's an appeal to pure uh, purism, uh, purity, and it's uh, again, it, it's it's it reeks of old guys can't adapt, and which is ironic because I, Scorsese is using Netflix and is having trouble, you know, with a lot of traditional. Uh, you know, theater releases, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting that, that he would say that again, it's not any less cinema just because it's about a comic book, uh, character. And as we know from films like the dark Knight and uh, obviously Joker, um, they comic book films can very much convey like human psychology and meaning. And, you know, this is basically film school snobbery and it, it's, and everyone's res responses has been really interesting because basically no one wants to badmouth Scorsese, but they do want to defend the MCU. <laughs> uh, but again, it, it's just like, yeah, if, if all you've ever made are, you know, basically small or independent films or things that were very high art, essentially like, uh, you know, I'm just going to sit here and roll my eyes. Yeah, and I wish I had a deeper answer than that, but I think you kind of hit it, hit the nail right on the head. Scorsese's built his entire career on making these deep, thought-provoking pictures, right? He calls them pictures, for God's sake. He doesn't even <laughs> call them movies or films. He calls his movies pictures. Um, his whole view of what a movie is is 
old and nostalgic and some would say vintage and others would say antiquated all right and it's important to understand that when he sees a movie like this it doesn't seem like a real picture to him you know it doesn't seem like a real film it's not cinema it's just some kind of fluff you know they throw a bunch of computer effects on it is what it is it does feel ironic coming from him after he's got this whole netflix thing going on with with his his new movie but i i i think people don't want to badmouth scorsese and they don't want to badmouth uh Marvel, not not in for fear of their reputations, but because, in a way, yeah, both are right. I think there's there's a lot of space in in cinema, right, to make a lot of different things. Like it's hard to say one of you is correct uh, over the other, right? Right. Well, and and there's two things here. First off, you can't judge films without seeing them. So to admit to not watching them, and then have these kinds of opinions is like that's pretty disingenuous. And then also. You know, just because you're not making some super deep philosophical slow. I mean, did you see what was the uh, what was the movie he made recently that uh, takes place si- in Japan? Silence. Yeah. yeah, Silence. Like, good. How many people went and watched? Like, Silence is <laughs> a real problematic film, and it's long. It's like two and a half hours long, and really, you know, deep and philosophical. And that that's great. Like, uh, cinema is is a lot of things, and can be a lot of things to a lot of different people, and a you know, a comic book movie is no less cinema just because it's has superheroes in it. Yeah. I, I am particularly intrigued by his comment. Like you said, uh, I don't see them. I tried, but that's not cinema. What does tried mean when you said you tried to get into comic book films? Cause there's like 30, you know, there, there's multiple genres and approaches you could take over, over, over a decade of film history now. Like, what do you mean you tried? What did you watch the first Avengers movie and then bail? <laughs> did you watch Endgame? Did you watch both parts of Endgame? Did you watch Black Panther? Did you see Wonder Woman? Like that that's so broad. And and that's what's important to understand is that the big irony of all of this of Scorsese saying that's not real cinema is Scorsese's new movie, they can't find a theater to run it in. Whereas these movies are making billions of dollars and are nationwide and people love them. So I don't know. Like, I, again, I don't want to say one of them is objectively wrong, but it's important to understand, like, the definition of what is relevant in cinema today is flexible and ever-changing. And don't ever let some college kid tell you that they know what cinema is, because they <laughs> don't. Yeah, it's nobody knows. That's the that's the big scheme behind cinema. Nobody knows. Well, it, that's like saying, well, what is and isn't art. Basically, if someone thinks it's art, it is art. And it's the same thing with cinema. You are Like, you are making movies, you're making good ones. And, you know, just because your character is in costume doesn't mean they can't also have... Uh, you know, deep feelings and emotions and psychological. I mean, how many endless articles and podcasts have been made about the dark Knight itself? Like, <laughs> like that, that movie, you could philo- philosophize about that movie endlessly or something like, yeah. like Mad Max, you know, just because you've pumped it into a very commercially successful thing doesn't mean make it any less art. I agree. So to kind of wrap this conversation up and bring it all around, I've got to know, Andy, we've got a hot take on Steven Spielberg's opinions regarding Netflix because we said, man, Spielberg's washed up. He's old hat. He doesn't know what he's doing anymore, (laughs) right? right. He's a crazy, crazy man in a chair. You know, sit down. uh, Get back on your porch. (laughs) So in regards to that and that, that, that approach, how do you feel about Scorsese? Do you feel any differently? Or you feel like, you know what, let him keep making his movies? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm just going to roll, roll my eyes. Like, he is a master filmmaker, no doubt, but that doesn't mean he can trash other, you know, other people's cinema or other, other people's movies, especially just because they happen to be, you know, part a little formulaic and, and very successful. You know, If, if all people did was make, you know, indies like the the industry wouldn't be what it is. It wouldn't be the size it, it was. It, it would be right. Well, we should probably move on to our final film of the episode. Again, this is an Amazon Prime uh, available feature right now. That's where you can see it if you haven't. So you can check it out right after you're done listening to the show. The movie is High Life. So before I get into the plot of High Life, I need to talk about why we're watching it so you understand why we picked this odd film, because you wouldn't expect us to grab it. High Life is a 2018 science fiction film starring Robert Pattinson. Like I said at the top of the show, Robert Pattinson is supposed to be our hot new Batman. He's been in the news. Annie and I got the Pattinson fever. We wanted to watch (laughs) a Robert Pattinson movie. We figured we'd watch High Life. 
Um, the other one that's available on Amazon Prime is Good Time, and in uh, in expectation of the Safdie Brothers film, Uncut Gems, that's coming out soon with uh, Adam Sandler. Maybe uh-huh. we should watch that soon. I don't know if we've... We haven't watched that for the show, right? No. No. Well, I, I saw it, and I'm going to make Andy watch it, so hold on to your hats. But before we get to all of that, we need to talk about High Life. So... High Life is a science fiction film starring Robert Pattinson as a young uh, death row inmate in a not-too-distant future, um, but an alternate reality where, uh, in an effort to move the human race forward, humanity decided they were going to put a bunch of death row inmates on a ship and just send it out into space, and they were going to make this an effort in a reproductive test to see how humans reproduce and the kind of ecosystem they may create when left in complete isolation. It's a weird test, but that's the premise for the movie. So Robert Pattinson plays one of a handful of death row inmates who are put on this ship and sent out into space to get it on, man. That's what's going on. And that's pretty much (laughs) your primary function. You've got food. You've got a little garden area for air and stuff. You've got visualizer rooms. You know, it's a science fiction film like you'd expect. Um, and, and while this is going on, there's also kind of a subplot involving his daughter and raising a daughter in this environment, which is very strange. Uh, it's, it's certainly a picture. Andy told me kind of his immediate thoughts the other night before I had seen it, <laughs> and then I watched it and thought, oh man, I think he, he might be totally right. Um, it's certainly a movie. It's definitely art house. Let's get into it. Andy, what did you think of High Life? Uh, so I had a real hard time get getting into this movie, and I love sci-fi uh, so much. And it's long and it's slow, and I never feel like I'm actually in space. <laughs> so there, there. Yeah. I mean, the sets look cheap. It it all just looks like a hospital. You know, they, they've said, "Oh, we we have artificial gravity because of the the doohickey." So, um, right. You know, so there's no float. Nothing ever looks like space. And like I said, they uh, they're all criminals. Even the doctor played by uh, Juliette Binoche. Um, and there's this weird like uh, se- sexual psychological aspect to it as as well. The inmates fight a lot. There's a lot of uh, and <laughs> I crassly called it space rape. The movie. Yeah, um, there's a whole I think I called it space turbation. Yeah, because there's a whole yeah. lot of that on on both sides. Uh, um, so I I couldn't really get into it. I was really distracted. I wasn't sure what it was about half the time or what it was trying to say. It it did have some interesting ideas, but like I said, it just looks so uh, cheap. It did have a decent cast. Like I said, Robert Pattinson. And we also have Andre Benjamin, better known as Andre Three Thousand, and uh, Mia Goth. <laughs> who was from uh, Suspiria of last year. Yeah, so let's, let's jump into High Life. Um, I guess the best place to start is the setting, right? Right. Because like, the plot, like I said, it's 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 a little deeper than that. You, you'll have to watch it to get into it, but for the most part, that's the setup. So our setting is this ship, right? You, you get a few exterior shots, but for the most part, you almost never see open space. It is very rare you see space in this movie at all. For the most part, the camera is locked on a tripod inside the ship. It's a giant kind of rectangular box. It it almost looks like a giant shipping container with a couple rockets on the end. And because it's moving through space so fast, uh, the the acceleration generates artificial gravity. So all of our characters walk and talk and act as if they're on Earth. So... You do you do get a little bit of that feeling of like you're not really in space. Like it just feels very obvious. It's the problem I had with Ad Astra actually. Um, right. And I think in a space movie can really take you out of the experience. Like it's something you got to get right. You know, I I had <laughs> I had trouble enjoying it in this because yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're actually in space. So yeah, the the very opening scene is is Robert Pattinson on the outside of the ship working on it, and it just looks like he's he's on a roof. <laughs> it just looks like he's outside on a roof at night. Like it's it's not convincing at all. Like he's not floating and, and bobbing around. He's it looks like he, he's laying down on this thing right. so he doesn't fall off of it. And, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, and you can make it's like, it's like we talked about last week. You can make these movies on a low budget, but like the presentations, got to be really something. And the colors in this movie are great. The lighting is great. The camera lenses they used are fantastic. It looks really crisp, but like ultimately, visually, it just doesn't add up to much. It's just boring. Yeah, um, I, yeah. Like I said, you can't get in. I couldn't get into it in a sci-fi sense because it 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 always looks like a hospital. 
Um, I couldn't yeah. couldn't really get behind this, like, because Juliet Binoche is doing like these weird, like, reproductive uh, experiments, both like with looks like IVF and then just people hooking up together as well. And like, they're trying to conceive some sort of child in space. No one can, but no one can conceive until eventually they do. Cause when it opened, the, the film was told in kind of in flashbacks where when it opens, Robert Pattinson, it's just him and his daughter. And then we slowly learned that there was a much larger crew who have all since slowly perished along the way. And we get flashbacks in, into kind of what happened. Right. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the reason I think that they can't reproduce are like cosmic rays that come by. So you get this really interesting dynamic with this. It's got a more harsh name, but I'm just going to call it the box in, in this yes. review. Uh, yeah. Where characters are relieved of sexual tension and pressure that they feel in the isolation of space. Um, I think that's got something to do with it. It's really presented almost like uh, Solaris it was back in the day of uh-huh. like this goofy kind of thing that's going on outside the ship, but all you can see is immediately inside the ship and don't 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 think too much about it. And and that frustrates me as a viewer. Like I'm not saying I need things explained to me wholesale. I can definitely fill in the blanks, but when you're intentionally jumping over information just because you don't have good answers it seems obvious to the viewer like hey it doesn't make sense that they would be using this box or it doesn't make (laughs) sense that all of these inmates would be going out to the middle of nowhere for no reason you know and then there's no purpose and no meaning and like i don't know it's it's got an oddly just kind of boring approach that way because because nothing adds up and, and you don't really get answers. Yeah, it, it's a little unclear why they're, where they're going. It's something about they're going to get near a black hole and get some information that's going to help space travel or something. It, again, that it reminded me a little bit of the same plot in Ad Astra, you know, where we're out in the the regions of the, the exterior regions of the solar system to look for something. We don't know what. Yeah, and there's even a couple of, and a couple, it is very rare, a couple of uh, scenes of, like, I guess what I need to call this is, like, space violence. Like, bad things happen in space, right? Because you're you're in a pressurized cabin, so naturally, like, something bad has to happen, of course. You know, a ship has to blow up, or something, an airlock has to stop working, or somebody's suit has a hole in it. Um, you even get a couple like obligatory hey we're in space space violence scenes yeah. because like those it feels like you just have to have those right but it doesn't it doesn't jump the gap we should talk about performances right and really <laughs> sure uh, I, the only <laughs> go ahead I was thinking you know I need to have a bingo card for next sci-fi space movie I watch and see how many of these it, it checks off like, you should yeah. hole in hole in the spacesuit. Yep. You know, airlock, someone trapped in the airlock. Yep. Air, airlock thing doesn't work correctly. <laughs> yeah. Or ship is going to blow up and we only have so much time to get in the life bay or, oh yeah, all kinds of things. Um, somebody's trapped in the airlock. Anyway, uh, we should talk about performances. Robert Pattinson, <laughs> of course, is our is our main man. Uh, Monty, I think is his name in this movie. Uh, he's, I mean, he's real good. He has to act opposite a baby for, for a good portion <laughs> of this picture. And for what it's worth, like he does a great job. He really does. He feels very genuine and honest and you can see him really getting the acting down with his eyes. But at the same time, I couldn't stop thinking it's just Robert Pattinson in a hospital, right? Like it's, he's not on a spaceship. This doesn't feel like a real movie. Like right. it's somehow, somehow like those low budget seams just show over everything. Did you feel that way? Yeah. And particularly, you know, back to performances, the, I feel like all the other cast members all are all interchangeable. Like I, there's several girls and several guys and I couldn't really tell any of them apart. They're all kind of terrible. They're all, like I said, ex ex criminals. Uh, You slowly learn a little bit about them throughout, throughout the movie. And like I said, but then they're also forced to kind of reproduce with each other, which is really weird. Like, it, 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 none of their performances really stood out. Right. And and that, a lot of that comes down to the writing, I think. Uh, let me just briefly roll over a name of, of character names from IMDb here. Monty is our main character. Here's some others. Dibs, Cherney, Boise, Nansen, Chandra. Like, those aren't names. Like, th- that, those aren't easily identifiable, memorable names. Like, those are just sounds, you know? And I get it's like a sci-fi future, you know, but... It, it, it doesn't 
give me enough to ground the characters in reality. I forget them. I forget who's that person over there. What what, what color was her hair again? Like, you don't remember. And you don't get any real uh, feedback into their lives before the ship. You, you just kind of dropped right into it. You're not even... I don't, I don't think you're ever even made aware of why these people are on death row. Yeah, th- there's a couple of, of hints here and there, but it, it's, like I said, I, I don't know why this person was on death row versus that person. It was all kind of interchangeable. And I think the place where High Life probably hurts the most is in its central theme, because I think at its core, what High Life is supposed to be is a celebration of kind of the discovery of life by a father learning from his newborn daughter on on a ship where he's isolated right out away from everything else and kind of learning to discover and love life even though he was on like death row and and he was willing to give his up to come on this ship that like that's all well and good but like you just don't quite get there like even saying it out loud now it feels like i'm stretching the narrative of what's in the film like thematically it just doesn't it doesn't come together um in a satisfying way yeah, um, <laughs> I was just reminded of this. Could we get a sci-fi movie where we can actually meet some aliens? Because I feel like every movie, it's the aliens either don't exist or the aliens are us. You know, inter- right. Interstellar, Stellar, Ad Astra, this, a slew of others. It's like you know, the aliens are the friends we made along the way, kind of thing. Yeah, it's true. You, you don't get a lot of aliens in sci-fi anymore. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because we, we were the aliens all along. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's that's the bit. You know, something like Arrival or Annihilation are, pro- are excellent examples of us, us meeting the aliens. Sure. That reminds me, Annihilation is on Amazon Prime as well. And I was like, ooh, it's October. That'd be a good, be a good horror kind of watch. There's some good stuff in there. Absolutely. That bear thing that screams like a person is one of the most horrifying monsters of last year, and I don't care who you are. Um, but we're not talking about Annihilation. We're talking about High Life, so that's getting us back on track. Andy, <laughs> any other big thoughts on this movie? Anything big? Because I feel like we it, this is the exact opposite of our Joker review here. We've done nothing but talk about the bad. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's, very, it's very different. You know, the, trying to think positive, it, it's... You know, it's a neat concept and it, this idea of, and th- and this is something that that's a b- bit of a, a film trope of, you know, you know, inmates on death row forced to do X, Y, Z. That's something that's used a lot. So this is an interesting uh, take on that. And and again, this is, you know, the, the kind of cinema that, that Scorsese is talking about. It's about the internal and about the psychological and the, the human experience and, uh, you know, all that, that sort of thing. Uh, it, to me, it, it didn't really work on a number of, of levels, but it was it was an interesting concept. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat. Like I said, the, the big highlights for me are Robert Pattinson. Uh, I think the lighting in this movie is really charming because it had to be inventive to get over the sets uh, and kind of the low-budget look of everything else. I think Claire Denis, female director, it's worth mentioning, um, did a pretty good job in this film. I think this is the first film of hers I've seen, and she's made a lot of movies. She's been making movies since 88, I think. So, oh, wow. Um, if you're a Claire Denis fan, it's probably up your alley. It didn't quite land for me. Andy, would you recommend High Life? Uh, I'm going to say Soft Pass. <laughs> soft Pass? Soft okay. Uh, well, I'm just making that up to <laughs> to, to be not be mean. Uh, oh, gotcha. it, it, it didn't. It really didn't work for me. It was real slow. It was really boring. I didn't really know what was going on. I couldn't focus. Part of this may actually be the Netflix problem. And I've found this with several of these where I have to like turn off my phone, put it somewhere else, and then go lay on the couch. Because if it's if my phone's near me, I'm just going to check it too, too much. And this is like, I wouldn't do that in the cinema, but when I'm on home on the couch to Netflix, it's a lot easier to be distracted. I mean, glass half empty, glass half full. You say, I have to have a reason to put my phone away. I say, the film should be the reason. The film should be good enough that you don't remember to get out your phone. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. I I would say hard pass on High Life. Um, I I wanted to like this movie going in. I know it doesn't sound like it from our scathing uh, review here, but I did. I I think think a lot of Pattinson, and I I was really interested in what this movie is going to be about. I didn't really know going in, but I was ultimately disappointed. It's not better than the sum of its parts. I think if you're going to watch, if if you want to get your Pattinson fix, uh, check out Good Time on Amazon Prime. I would argue it's a much better film. And with that, we should probably wrap the show. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Just like always, next week we're going to be taking a look at Gemini Man, the Will Smith movie where he fights a younger version of himself. 
Um, I don't know if there's a better way to cash in on the nostalgia America has for Will Smith, but <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen any reviews, but I also haven't seen a lot of trailers. So for what I know, Gemini Man may not be that awesome, but we'll see. Maybe it'll be cool. We're also going to check out El Camino, a Breaking Bad film, which we're very excited to watch, a TV movie on our movie podcast. What is the world coming to, Andy? Yeah. Theatrical release, nonetheless. That's right, theatrical release. Uh, I've only seen one trailer. I didn't watch the full trailer, and I haven't gone back and rewatched any of Bad. I'm going in fresh. It's yeah. happening. Yeah, I'm gonna, just gonna just gonna go for it. So we'll see if we can make that happen. And then also, there's some very very scre- very limited screenings of Parasite, the new Bong Joon Ho film. I doubt we're gonna see that, but just worth mentioning. Yep. Want to yeah. let people know that it's out there, and also that uh, at some point this month, the lighthouse is supposed to be out, which is Robert Pattinson's uh, and Willem Dafoe in that uh, Robert Eggers' new new horror film. Speaking of that buzz, you hear uh, Robert Pattinson's supposed to get nominated for an Oscar? Huh? That's, that's the word on the street. Word on the best, street. Best lead actor. Oh snap! I will never understand how Robert Pattinson can be seen through like. 80 years of camera filters and makeup and horrible lighting and they go that's an academy awarding performance but andy circus busts it on motion capture to try to look like an ape for 10 years or something and they're like no you don't even get a category like that's not Doesn't that's count. not that's not performance that's Doesn't not count. acting there's no justice in the world. Well, if you enjoyed the show, if you liked what we're doing here, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, we're over on Twitter. We're on YouTube where short reviews are always posted. Subscribe on any of those things. Follow us where you can, all that social media stuff. And if you can do anything for the show, just subscribe. Or, you know, rate and review. That, that, that would help too. But really, subscribing is a very important thing. So don't be afraid to do that. And tell your friends. That helped out a lot as well. From all of us here at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.